Well, let's uh, pray as we uh, come before the Lord and uh, submit to his word. Dear Father, we thank you that we can come before you today as your people. Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who has revealed yourself through your word. And as we come to hear it read aloud now and as we, we seek to exposit it and to understand it, we pray that through your spirit, the writer of this word and the illuminator of this word, we pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to understand. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Modern society is rampant with litigation. People are always taking each other to court. We see it almost daily in the news, uh, in the papers, on the internet, TV, whatever, wherever. We even have uh, reality TV shows that are dedicated to displaying these courtroom scenes for us. And we can watch the craziness unfold as two people fight it out, in a sense, before the judge. Our society is so ill-equipped at working through issues in a rational way uh, that we find it entertaining to have two people stand there bickering with one another before a judge. It's entertainment for us. It's so bad, it's funny at times. But imagine turning on your television and seeing something like, I don't know, Judge Judy, one of those shows, and standing before her as the plaintiff and the defendant are two members of your own church. Two people who regularly assemble together to worship God, to sing his praises, to share in communion together, as we will do later in this service, uh, to proclaim the gospel to a lost world together. And yet now they stand opposing one another. What a sight that would be. Well, this was actually happening in the church in Corinth. Although having responded to the gospel that is accepting and believing in Christ as atoning death and his bodily resurrection, submitting to him in obedience, these people were still holding on to the philosophies and ideologies of the ancient Greek culture of which they were a part of. And because of this, the Corinthian believers, while passionate people, they had a lot of things going on that needed sorting out. And uh, there were divisions in the church over which leader they were going to follow. Uh, There was immorality. Chapter 5, there is a case of incest going on. And uh, and the people were just letting it happen. Uh, There were issues surrounding the Lord's table. Uh, There were theological problems, for some of them were denying the future bodily resurrection of all believers, which Paul had to point out actually meant a denial also of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and out goes salvation with that as well. All of these things and many others the Apostle Paul had to address in one way or another throughout his first letter. Well, here as we come to look at chapter 6 today, is one more issue in which the people were acknowledging themselves as Christians 
but they were certainly not acting like they belonged to God's kingdom. You see, in the ancient Greek culture, particularly in Athens, which was only a a stone's throw away from Corinth, there was an incredibly sophisticated legal system. There was a, a detailed process for how the people could settle their disputes among one another. And it was part of everyday life. Uh, for people uh, to take each other to court to make sure your rights as a citizen were not infringed upon. But now that the Corinthian believers were made part of God's kingdom, this action to take fellow believers to court was both spiritually wrong and practically unnecessary. Why is that? Well, it might help to ask another question first. What is the kingdom of God? Well, one author has stated it simply as being God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. And the progressive revelation of scripture that is from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, we see different stages of how this all plays out, how God's reign and the realm in which he rules plays out. In the end, we know that God's reign will be recognized over the new heavens and the new earth. But while God is still sovereign at this very moment, those who acknowledge God's gracious rule are the church. Believers acknowledge that God is king and that his people are to live in obedience to his kingship. Members of the church are part of the kingdom because of faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through this, they've been made holy, separated and devoted to God. Listen to how Paul actually opens up uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. To be holy or sanctified is to be set apart from the world and set apart and devoted to God. Although uh, we as believers still live in the world and are called to witness to the world, believers are actually now not of the world. There is a distinction. We belong to a different kingdom now. And the distinctive nature of God's kingdom is seen here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a specific example of what it looks like to live as kingdom people. We see that come out in how disputes among the Lord's people are to be handled appropriately especially in the light of how they were being handled inappropriately by the Corinthians. Well, let me begin by reading the text. Uh, so if you haven't already, I encourage you to please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're just going to read verses 1 to 11. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in our text, Paul begins by addressing the confusion about the God's kingdom. And then secondly, we see Paul bring clarification about God's kingdom. Essentially, he begins by explaining the problem and then he goes on to put forward the solution. There's confusion and there's clarification. And this is where we'll be headed as we work through this passage uh, this morning. So he begins talking about confusion concerning God's kingdom. There's verses 1 to 6. How were God's people confusing the distinctive nature of God's kingdom? Well, there were three main aspects. And the first one is this. They were not being watchful. They were not being watchful. God's people were having disputes settled by ungodly people. So verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? God's people had been set apart under his rule, distinct from the world, and yet they were blurring that distinction. Believers were going before unbelievers to sort out their differences. Those filled with the spirit of God, the spirit of truth and of holiness, were seeking guidance from those filled with the spirit of this world. The issue wasn't that these judges may have uh, rendered an unfair verdict or that they may have been legally unqualified. The issue was that by going to a secular court, it showed contempt and a lack of respect for the authority of the church and its ability to sort through disputes itself. When I say the authority of the church, I don't just mean the pastors and elders, but the whole Church, all of us being members of Christ's body, all of us experiencing the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul goes on in verses 2 to 4, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Imagine for a moment two court judges going down to the pub and having their disputes sorted out by a known drug dealer. That's just unthinkable, isn't it? Because that known drug dealer, when arrested, uh, would eventually stand before those judges who would render their verdict against him. Well, God has stated in his word that Christians will sit as the future judges of this world. Now, that's not how we are to act now. Uh, In dealing with the matter of incest in chapter 5, Paul stated clearly in verses 12 to 13, he said, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So believers are not yet to judge the world. We are to proclaim the gospel. That is our mission. And if people do not respond to the gospel, well, then they bring that judgment upon themselves. But we are not to judge those outside the church. But that will change when Christ returns. Listen to the Apostle John's vision in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, there are numerous other passages which speak about believers being involved in the judgment of this world. So the point Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 6 is that this should actually impact our perspective. The church should be able to judge trivial cases between each other. Uh, These are not trivial cases because they were petty or small, but trivial in comparison to the final judgment. They had no perspective on what would happen in the future. And so the Corinthians were confusing the distinctive nature of God's kingdom by not being watchful. Well, secondly, they were confusing things by not being wise. Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Taking fellow believers to court shows a lack of wisdom among God's people. Listen to the words of Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And yet, if there is no wisdom in the church, then is there really fear of the Lord? Is there really faith present? Indeed, the church is to operate wisely, and in particular with the way disputes are handled and discipline is carried out within the church. Discipline is part of the church's mission to edify believers. It's part of growing in discipleship. Uh, The mission of the church is to make disciples. And so we go out into the world and evangelise. 
And as new believers are brought into the church, the church is to continue in discipleship by edifying one another, uplifting and growing each other as Christ's disciples. We never actually stop in that discipleship process. The problem was that the Corinthians had failed dismally. They had actually reversed what should be happening. Instead of disciplining wayward believers... Uh, They were rejoicing with them in their sin, celebrating it. Instead of dealing with matters within the church, they were seeking the wisdom of the world. Now, Paul explains many times in his letters about what should happen when disputes arise between believers. Jesus himself outlines the whole discipline process. Now, turn with me to Matthew 18. And let's see what our Lord has to say about this matter. Many people spurn the idea of church discipline, but it was the Lord who set out the process himself. Matthew 18, from verses 15 to 20. Jesus said this, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There is to be no gossip. There's no spreading information around. There's no, oh, did you hear this? There is the simple action of going and speaking to that person who has sinned either against you or that you've witnessed them acting against God's word. Either uh, they've sinned against you directly or indirectly as being part of Christ's body. And the aim is for repentance and reconciliation to occur without it having to be brought out in the open. Verse 16, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so if they they won't listen to one person, it then gets expanded to a small group of people. And verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The number of witnesses is then expanded to include the whole church. And it's not about getting your way, it's about calling that person back into the fold. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means they are not part of the church anymore. Unlike the Corinthians who were celebrating uh, this person committing incest and who was still claiming to be a Christian and joining them in fellowship and worship. No, that's not to happen. But how does Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Does he kick them out and turf them to the curb? No, he treats them with love and care and with calling them to respond to the gospel. And then he continues, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We often quote that last verse when two or three rock up to a meeting when we're expecting maybe 20 or 30 people. 
hey, Jesus is still with us. It's okay. And while it's true that Christ is always in the midst of his people, Christ dwells within us through his spirit. This verse in this context is in regards to decisions made within the church. It's got absolutely nothing to do with how many people rock up to a meeting. It is confirmation that when believers agree together on matters of discipline uh, and has sought to be faithful and humble to Christ and how it's carried out, then Christ is a part of that. But again, the discipline process is never about revenge or retribution or getting your own way. It is rather about reconnecting people to God and to each other. Now, maybe we think the church can't work through this stuff, just way too complicated. But that has a lot to do with the church not preparing itself through the study of God's word and reliance on the people, uh, reliance on the Holy Spirit. Jesus is very clear, but it takes a lot of courage to follow through with matters of discipline. And really, that's why we don't see that a lot in churches today. Believers have the Holy Spirit who grants and bestows wisdom and so we should seek his guidance to act wisely. Well, the third way the Corinthians were causing confusion was by not being witnesses. Verse 6. A brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. What did Jesus say? He said that it was by love for fellow believers that the world would know they belong to him. Jesus said, go out into the world and proclaim the gospel, the message of salvation. But in the action of taking one another to secular court, the believer's witness to the world is diminished or removed altogether. Now, there may be times when a Christian cannot help but come before a secular court. For example, if a, if a Christian is, is being divorced by their spouse uh, or if a Christian parent is seeking to protect their children from abuse by a former spouse. But let me read these words of, of uh, Pastor John MacArthur from the Grace Community Church. He says this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Even in those kinds of exceptions, when for some reason a Christian finds himself unavoidably in court with a fellow believer... His purpose should be to glorify God and never to gain selfish advantage. The general rule is, do not go to court with fellow Christians, but settle matters among yourselves. In all these ways, the Corinthian church was confusing the distinctive nature of God's kingdom. And really, are these ways unfamiliar to us today? Do we not see that happen? in the church today. But how does Paul lead them, and indeed us, back on the right track? Well, he does that by bringing clarification about God's kingdom. How are the believers in Corinth urged to clarify the distinctive nature of God's kingdom? Well, the solution Paul gives is also threefold. Number one is to resist acting as wrongdoers. Resistance is the key, first key. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. To do something like taking a fellow believer to court was spiritually wrong because it blurred the distinction between the two kingdoms. However, it was also spiritually wrong because it flies in the face of what it means to be a believer. You see, Christians are members of God's kingdom and we are also members of Christ's body. We are united together in Christ. And that is a fact, even if it's not experienced at all times in practice. What does it mean to be a believer? Well, Paul explains in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. This is what it looks like to be a believer in Christ. Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony we know those words and those elements come up time and again throughout the scriptures explaining how we act with one another with forgiveness being essential to all of it. If you think back for a second to Matthew 18, where Jesus laid out the plan for handling disputes, do you know what the next parable is? It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. And the point of that parable is forgiveness. If someone does turn around from their sin, if someone does repent, we are to welcome them back. And that's an important key there as well. Repentance must be included. We're not called to forgive uh, and bring reconciliation where there is no repentance. We tend to cough and move over that important aspect. Repentance must be there. But when repentance comes, we are to welcome them back and to forgive them. And even if they don't, even if that repentance is not there, our attitude as Christians should still be an attitude of forgiveness, even if that reconciliation cannot happen. Our greatest concern should be for the gospel. If we take a fellow believer to court and we win financially, woohoo! Well, really there is no victory at all because we've actually lost spiritually. And we've defamed the name of the church in the process. So resistance to getting even is the first key. Secondly, we are to recognise the future of wrongdoers. There needs to be a recognition of what lies ahead for those who live against the ways of God's kingdom. Verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Inheriting the kingdom is synonymous with believing the gospel and receiving its benefits. As Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, this only happens through a generating work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's work first. He is sovereign even over salvation. We're not saved because we do the right thing, but because of God's grace, through faith in his Son 
and faith itself being a gift from God. However, that is a living faith. Faith always evidences itself with good works. While believers are not sinless and we will continue to struggle with indwelling sin, uh, we are no longer to partake in habitual sin, but to live as kingdom people. As Paul says in Romans fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, joy, these are principles of the kingdom. This is what is to characterize kingdom people. So, we are not to be deceived. It really is, and listen very carefully here, it really is a deception to think that you can persist in habitually disobeying God's commands and God's word and think you can still be a Christian. That is a flat out lie of the devil. You will be known by your fruit, says Jesus. To habitually persist in these actions shows that you have not actually received the Spirit. So do not be deceived. Now Paul does not provide an exhaustive sin list or vice list here, but he gives broad examples of behaviour that is inconsistent with God's kingdom. And the point is to emphasise that habitual sin in whatever size, shape or colour separates a person from God's kingdom. You are showing that you have not actually received the spirit. And that is why we see suing fellow believers listed alongside all of these other things. You might think initially that it makes no sense, however it makes perfect sense. For evidence of having entered God's kingdom is love for God and love for his people. So those who will not inherit the kingdom of God are the sexually immoral. This is a a general term that has to do with any sexual relations outside a marriage covenant between husband and wife. This command is filled out more from verse 12 uh, to the end of the chapter. And the fact that in verse 16, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 about two bodies becoming one flesh, it specifically shows that sexual immorality encompasses any relations outside of the marriage covenant. Furthermore, as Christians, as members of God's kingdom, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so what we do with our bodies is extremely important. Just as Christ's body was raised from the dead, at his return, so will the bodies of believers, which is made abundantly clear throughout the whole of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So do not be deceived. Idolaters also will not see the kingdom. As we'll see in a few weeks when we look at Romans 1, uh, this is the root cause of human problems. Taking God from his position of authority and replacing him with anything, with everything that we can come up with. And we do that in a variety of ways. But God must have the place of authority. Adulterers also will not see the kingdom. This is a a huge issue. 
Remember Jesus' words as well in Matthew 5. It's not just the physical act, but lusting after a woman is committing adultery. If that is our continued mindset, then we need to think hard about our position before Christ. Our desires, says Jesus, can be sinful if they are desiring the wrong thing. Do not be deceived, men who practice homosexuality will also not see the kingdom. This phrase here translates two Greek words, which if you've got a study Bible, most Bibles you'll see a footnote which explains that for you. And the first word is arsenokoitai, and it's a compound word with arsen meaning male and koita meaning bed. So what it means is literally bedders of men. The same word is found in 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 where Paul includes practicing homosexuality among another list of things that God's law condemns and is against sound doctrine. What is interesting is it seems that Paul actually coined this phrase out of the words used in Leviticus 18 and 20 where all homosexual activity is condemned by Moses. That's the first word. The second word uh, is malakoi, uh, and it means effeminate. And it refers to the passive partner in a homosexual encounter. Therefore, it cannot be, as some suggest, that Paul was only condemning exploitative homosexual activity, uh, because he says that both the active and the passive participants will not inherit the kingdom. Again, he's showing consistency with what Moses says in Leviticus 20. So it matters not the situation, the circumstances or the nature of the homosexual activity for whether it be prostitution or older men having relations with boys or whether it is exploitative or whether it is a supposedly caring relationship. All homosexual activity stands against God's design that sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage covenant between one man and one woman for life. Now, incidentally, one of the big arguments that people raise against the biblical teaching on homosexuality is the Bible's teaching on slavery. I'm sure you've heard that come up a lot. But this argument truly holds no weight when you see that when Paul mentions homosexuality in 1 Timothy 1 verse 10, do you know what the very next thing he lists in unlawful behaviour? Slave trading. And furthermore, While some wish to draw connections between rights concerning race and sexuality, there really is no positive connection to be made. Slavery stands against the truth that all people are made in the image of God. And so liberating slaves is a good thing, which incidentally was spearheaded by biblically convicted Christians. Whereas homosexuality stands against God's good design for human relationships. So if there is a connection to be had between slavery and homosexuality or racism and homosexuality, is that they are both against God's good design for humanity. Now in the interest of time, I won't look further at the rest of this vice list except to say that all the things spoken of show in various ways a lack of love for God and for his people. 
And unrepentant persistence in them testifies to not being part of the kingdom. So the things that we've looked through already in more detail, these may or may not apply specifically to where you are at at the moment. But if you continue down that list, you might find some things that strike more closer to the heart for you. So recognition of where wrongdoing ends up is key. And the third clarifying aspect is to remember that believers are no longer wrongdoers. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is what some of you were, past tense. No more. All people are sinful by nature and it means we are born with a bent towards sin. And that's going to manifest itself in different ways for different people. And we we cannot say that we were created a particular way in order to justify behaving in manners that are against God's revealed will. One person cannot say that God created them a swindler any more than another person cannot say God created them as a homosexual. Even if there are aspects of our genetic makeup that may contribute to our sinful desires, we cannot attribute them to God's good design, but only to an offshoot of the fall. Because of this, because these sinful desires are a result of the fall, when the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and leads us to repentance and faith, we become new creations. We are freed from our bondage to sin and freed to serve our new master, Jesus Christ. While we need to work hard at not allowing ourselves to return to sinful activity, the Spirit gives us a desire to follow God's decrees and enables us to follow God's decrees. Now, with respect to homosexuality, the goal is not conversion to heterosexuality, but commitment to holiness. And this might manifest itself in heterosexuality, but it may also mean chastity. But growing in holiness is the goal for every sinner, you and me. Growing in holiness and being conformed to the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But that is never a change that we can bring about in our own strength. That is why our mission as the church is to proclaim the gospel. Hear me clearly, the greatest self-help program designed by man will still fall short and fail to bring spiritual and lasting change to a person's life. Only the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to those who believe. And that is why we should not be ashamed of the gospel and timid in our proclamation of it either. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel and we should follow in his stead. But that is what some of you were until you heard the gospel and responded in faith. And the blessings that Paul lists are past tense as well. That is, they have already occurred. In the one who believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and he physically rose again, then these things have happened, says Paul. The believer has been washed. Prior to believing 
Uh, their hearts have been regenerated. Uh, they've been born again, a spiritual cleansing birth from heaven. The believer has then been sanctified, set apart by God and for God. The indwelling Holy Spirit now guiding them to live as kingdom people and the church together as the community of the kingdom. The believer has been justified, forgiven and declared righteous before God, all through Christ. Because of him, they have a changed status before God. All of this is through the triune God, the work of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you know what? In the context of this passage, all this means that believers should be able to give up suing each other as well. So remembering the change that has been enacted in our lives through Christ is key. Just as we close, let me remind us that the church is the community of the kingdom. It is the community whom acknowledges and lives under God's gracious rule. While we live and witness in the world, we are to live with distinction as God's people. Now this passage is primarily been about lawsuits and indeed this should apply exactly to Christians today. However, the general principle behind this has to do with the way that we treat one another in the kingdom. For what we do has an effect not only on our relationships within the church, but also in our witness outside the church and indeed our own relationship with God. Love is not some mushy sentiment. But love is something that seeks to grow the other in discipleship, that the world might know we belong to Christ and that the world might acknowledge the glorious kingdom reign of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we we are humbled by what we read in your word here today. We are humbled because we recognise that in certain ways this passage speaks to each one of us. We ask for your forgiveness in the way that we have failed to be distinctive members of your kingdom. But we thank you for those wonderful words at the end of that passage, that we were washed, sanctified and justified through Christ. That is our position now. And it's through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit that we are enabled to live like that. We recognise the, uh, the power of the indwelling sin, but we recognise that, that um, we are no longer in bondage to it, even though it rears its head and we are to fight against it. We recognise that we have been freed and that we are no longer members of the kingdom of this world, but that we belong to your kingdom and we submit to your reign. We ask that you would help us, both individually and as your people gathered as a church, to be distinctive, to stand out, that the world might know we belong to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.